Well, I, I, it's always a joy doing our baby ded dedications. And, and, you know, parents these days need all the help they can get. Phyllis and I had the privilege a couple of weeks ago of going up to the Orkneys, where I uh, uh, celebrated, um, did, if you like, the wedding of my niece in St. Magnus Cathedral. That was absolutely extraordinary, wonderful place. I don't know if you've ever been there. Uh, but it is uh, a kind of strawberry-colored cathedral. And uh, although it was raining pretty much the whole time we were there, there was a brief moment as the bride came out of the cathedral where the sun came out and the whole thing just lit up. It's absolutely magnificent. But I, the reason I mention it, my, my brother-in-law told a very funny story in, the, uh, in his speech uh, as father of the bride. He said uh, he was in the Falklands, and he had to, he, every week they were allowed two minutes. You know, the Ministry of Defense gave him two minutes to ring home. And he rang home, and, and Heather, his wife, my sister-in-law, came to the phone in floods of tears. And that was kind of not what you want to hear when you're on the other side of the world, and you can't, you've, you've got two minutes. And he, and he said, what's the matter, honey? She said, oh, it's terrible, I don't know what to do. Hamish, that's the name of their son, has nailed Lindsay to the floor. <laughs> And he said, what? He said, Hamish has nailed Lindsay to the floor. He said, what do you mean? And he said, well, Hamish was playing with his Lego and Lindsay kept knocking it over. So he got a nail and he got some hammers and he, and he nailed her baby grow to the floor. <laughs> that boy will go far. <laughs> I love that story. Well, uh, we are continuing our series called Heroes. And one of the exciting things that we began last week is that we uh, had the first of our potential church planters, Henry Cross, st stood up here and spoke on Peter, and he did an outstanding job. I'm so excited about the other guys and, and what, what they're going to bring, but what a way to begin. And if you didn't hear it, get online, listen to the last week's podcast. It was wonderful. I am going today actually zero in on our little tagline here. This series called Heroes, we, we've been doing it a little while now, but we are just getting so much out of it. It's been such a rich vein of, of golden truth that we're still in it. And that little tagline says, the godly people in the land are my true heroes, Psalm 16, verse 3. And I want to talk about God's people as the heroes today. You know, we've focused on individuals and their lives, and we will continue to do that, but today, I want to look at you guys, the people whom God regards as heroes. And I'm just going to pray and then we'll get straight into it. Holy Spirit, I know actually that this is something that you really wanted to me to bring. And Lord, you have shown me things and I'm grateful for that. And I pray, Lord God, that uh, as I speak this morning, uh, I, I hope I, it's engaging. Uh, I wouldn't mind if it's entertaining, but most of all, Lord, let it be effective. Let it do everything that you have in mind for this word to build up, to encourage, even to save some of your people. And we would ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with the Olympics, and of course we're in between two lots of Olympics at the moment, we're waiting for the Paralympics, which begin next weekend, I believe, there's been a lot of talk of the legacy, you know, the legacy of the, the, the Olympics, you know, inspiring the next generation. And of course, any of you who've been a Christian for a little while will know that this was a passion of Jesus's. He, he was here for 33 years 
on the face of this earth as a man. His ministry actually was about three years, but there came a point where he ascended into heaven, and we believe he's coming again. We believe he is alive. He's not a ghost. He's nothing like that. He is alive, but he was all about equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. He was all about giving away and leaving a legacy. And the very fact that we are here today with not thousands, but nor hundreds of thousands, but millions of Christians worldwide is testimony to the fact that he was successful in his desire to leave a legacy. And I just want to quickly track through this. It's going to be a bit of a gallop for the first five minutes or so, because I want to give you some background, and then I want to get into the, the message bit that, that I feel the Lord has really laid on my heart. So we can see this emphasis of Jesus is to leave a legacy really as early as Luke 9, when Jesus was alive, at this point, he's gathered around him. There are crowds beginning to gather, but he has called out of the crowds a dozen young men, and they were young, as, as Henry rightly said last week. It's estimated the, 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 the disciples, most of the disciples were in their teens, you know, our youth group. Extraordinary, isn't it? You kind of think of them as old, wise, prophety guys with big beards and a staff, because that's what cathedrals tend to have in their stained glass windows, but they were teenagers. They were teenagers. So he's gathered this 12, and, and then one day, uh, you know, he kind of springs uh, a new mission for them. And we'll just read Luke 9, chapters, uh, 9, verses 1 and 2. It says, when Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So even when Jesus was here... He was sending them out on kind of mission trips, and then they would come back and they would tell him what had happened, and there were lots of great stories, lots of things happened. But they were probably pretty nervous, just as you know, when, uh, uh, when you guys feel prompted by God, the Jesus you love, to sort of step out and say something to a neighbor or a friend or a colleague at work, you kind of get all adrenaline. <sighs> well, believe me, these teenagers will have just, felt just the same way. You know, oh, Jesus, can't you do it? No, no, you're going to do it. Off you go. And so off they would go. So that was the first kind of ministry trip or mission trip, if you like, for the, for the, the disciples. We actually know their names. I'm not going to go through it now, but we know these guys. But it very quickly kind of, it's not the right word, but I'll use it, degenerates into Jesus sending out crowds of followers to do this mission of his. The next example would be uh, the 72, Luke chapter 10, verses 1 and 9, and we'll just read that. Thank you very much. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others. We don't even get their names. don't even know who they are. 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he said to them, same thing he said to the 12, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. And they went out and they came back. And we actually have a lovely little bit of feedback. They came back and they were absolutely amazed. They said, Jesus, when we got out there, even demons submitted to us. It was incredible what, you know, what we were able to accomplish in your name. So now we're up to 72, rushing on. Uh, we could spend a week on this and it would be fun to do, but uh, we haven't the time and it's not appropriate at this moment. But the next thing is the 120. Now at this point, we've scrolled forward rapidly. Jesus has been to uh, the cross. He's died on the cross for your sins and mine, for the sins of the world. He has risen from the dead. He has ascended into heaven, and he said to his, his followers, at this point, there's the 12 and a few 
the, the 11 and a few hangers on and he says, look, go back into the city and I want you to wait there until the Holy Spirit comes upon you with power, then you'll know what to do and, and it'll all be business as usual again. And so here we have the 120 who are now uh, designated believers and followers and, and we've got a little verse for that. Um, Acts chapter two, verses one to four. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they, set, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And those of you who know your Bible a little bit will know that following on for this, they, you know, they'd, been in, they'd been afraid, they'd been you know, locked together, uh, uh, supporting one another, waiting, as it were, for the, the Roman authorities to come and carry them away. But this completely changes their disposition. They tumble out into the streets. Peter steps up, one of the apostles that Henry spoke on last week, he preaches the sermon of a lifetime and thousands get saved. And, and for a few weeks, possibly months, it's just amazing. In Jerusalem, it's like everybody is becoming a Christian. There are healings, there are miracles, there are all sorts of things going on. There's compassion ministries, rather like our feed ministry, where we give away bags of food every, every week to, to local people who are struggling, and, and just all sorts of amazing things happening. It's a really happy holiday type of feel. But then things go a bit pear-shaped. The religious authorities, and I did emphasize that word religious authorities, and I will touch on that a little bit more, they begin to feel like it's getting out of control, this. It's all getting out of control, and so various things happen, and they single out a, a guy called Stephen, who is, at that point, he's a godly guy, man of integrity, but he's helping serving in the feed ministry. And they single him out, and long story short, read it, it's in Acts chapter six and seven, and it's an amazing story. And, and he ends up being martyred. He's the first Christian martyr. He ends up being stoned, and uh, not on drugs, but with bricks and things. And that was a joke, and you can laugh. And, uh, and at that point, at that point, the whole mission, the whole legacy, hangs in the balance. Because up until now, it's been fun, it's been the new thing in town, and it's sort of everybody's jumping on the back bandwagon. And at this point, we reach an absolutely critical moment in the, the, the story of an embryonic church. So let's just pick it up there, and this is where I begin to catch a little breath and unpack the story a bit. So we'll look at Acts chapter eight, verses one to three. It says this. On that day, and that's the day that Stephen was, was martyred, stoned to death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the Judea and Samaria. Godly men came and buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Saul was one of the key instigators in, in Stephen's martyrdom. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. This was a despotic style crackdown. It's the kind of thing that we see even today when you hear of dictators in some far-flung country suddenly cracking down 
on the people. The sort of thing we're seeing in Syria at the moment. Things that we've seen in, in, in various Eastern Bloc countries. Things that we've seen in Africa. And so many times it's a regular feature where suddenly a threatened dictator or a thre- threatened regime cracks down on the people severely and harshly. It actually says a couple of, uh, a chapter or so later on that Saul was going around, it, it paints him rather like Godzilla. Actually, it's not a bad picture, that. You know, the people are scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And if you can think of a Hollywood-type film where Godzilla is walking through New York and he's smashing up taxi cabs and buildings and all the people, you know, they're all going, That's kind of fun. I enjoyed that. Why don't you all try that, right? Put everybody your hand up. Everybody do that? Two hands? Come on, not one hand. Get with it. Okay. I don't think you're going to get a call from Hollywood. You know, I don't think that's just wasn't, there wasn't much passion in that, but never mind. At this point, the picture is of Godzilla, but in this case, he's called Saul. And a, a, a chapter later, it talks about him going around the country, breathing murderous threats against the church. It's like he's breathing fire. And people are being martyred, and it's absolutely terrible. And at that point... As I say, the future of the church seems to hang in the balance. But let's read on. It doesn't actually stop there. Uh, Verse 4, thank you. It says this, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with sheep, with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So instead of in true Hollywood style, all the extras running, screaming, ah, and sort of you know, being crushed and buildings fallen on them and all the rest of it. Here, the church is scattered. It's the apostles that, for reasons we're a little unclear, stay in Jerusalem. They bless their hearts, hold their ground. They don't flee for what, you know, they stay in Jerusalem, even though that's the very epicenter of the persecution at that time. The people scatter, and you can say, oh yeah, end of story. But they actually take the legacy with them. And everywhere they go, these nameless ones, people like you and me, known in heaven but maybe not known on earth, everywhere they go, they take this this gospel. It, It really is extraordinary. This scattering proves to be the best thing that could have happened to the church. When when the persecution broke out, did they think it was the best thing that happened? Probably not. Those of you who are going through difficult times at the moment, those of you who are, and I'm really speaking to those of you who are followers of Jesus, if you're going through tough and difficult times at the moment, do you see this as the best thing that could have possibly happened to you? Probably not. I know I struggle with those moments and those seasons. But actually the word of God says this, that all things work together for good for those who love Christ. Does that mean to say that he takes us out of the the harm and the hassle of modern day living? No. We go through it rather than 
are taken out of it. So this proved to be the best thing because what happened was, was that these guys scattered, they took the legacy with them, and it was as if they sowed seeds everywhere. And it was like, you know, Christianity was like a weed. Everywhere it went, it sprung up. And there was life there. And there was, you know, there, there was hope there. And there was joy there. It says here, and a great and important point in this, that there was great joy in the city. So instead of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and wringing of hands and angry, you know, invocations against God because of all the disaster that had come upon them, there was joy. There was great joy. I think I included it in my, my prayer at the beginning, but joy is the emotion of the kingdom, according to C.S. Lewis, and I've come to appreciate that more and more. Joy is the emotion of the kingdom. And, and joy is something that actually transcends circumstances. You know, we all know people who are well off, but are they happy? No, they're miserable. We all know people who have very little, but they seem to be full of joy. Joy, uh, that emotion, that happiness thing, seems to be disconnected from circumstances frequently. But I want to look a little bit more closely at, at this scattering and the legacy. What was it that the followers took with them? What was it that they were carrying that, that kept them on fire, that caused them to laugh out loud, that caused this weed called the gospel to spring up? You see, I find myself sometimes haunted, and that's quite a good way of putting it, haunted by what, it, what, you know, I ask myself, what is it that I am sowing into you? What is it that we are sowing into society? And I know because of my own struggles, all too often, I'm not sowing the gospel. I hope I've done my best with you, but, but I know that the church, the church worldwide, tends to sow, not the gospel, but sows religion. And so I ask myself, I'm gonna try and tease out the distinction there. I ask myself, this legacy, you know, they went out and they preached the gospel, was that because they were guilt-driven? Were they guilt-driven? You see, as I talk to Christians, particularly Christians from certain streams, there's an awful lot of guilt. There's a lot of shame. It's like everything is, it, the motivation behind everything is, is one of guilt and shame. It, it's quite extraordinary. But, but you know, that's what religion will do to you. It'll just make you feel guilty. It doesn't make you feel free or joyful. It just makes you feel guilty. That's what religion will do to you. Was it... Uh, well, for want of a better word, a call of duty. Was it a sense that it wasn't about guilt, it was just that this is the right thing to do, so I'm going to do it come hell or high water? An over-egged sort of sense of responsibility. You know, Jesus died for the cross, so it's the very least we could do. You know, these kind of things will motivate people temporarily, but it, there's no, there's, you cannot sustain a mission based on guilt. You cannot sustain a legacy driven by just a sense of dry duty. It will not work. Work for a few weeks, but it has no legs on it. 
We, we could unpack this further, but let me just do one more. Was it about blind faith? Blind faith. Religion demands that of you. Religion demands blind faith. Shut up. It's what we've always believed. Believe it. You see, there's too much of this in the church today. There's too much religion. There's too much guilt-driven ministry. There's too much you know, duty-bound uh, expressions of service. There's too much just blind, unquestioning faith. That's not the gospel. That's not what brought joy to the city. That's not what got these early nameless ones, and I hope you're not offended by that, just we don't know their names. That's not what scattered them abroad with this good news about Jesus. It's not what got them out of bed in the morning, kept them up late at night, not caught them raptured in prayer and fasting and singing God's praise and worship. It's not that. Guilt, shame, duty, blind faith are chores that some of us learn to do. But there's no reality, no life in it. And so we have a distinction here, and I hope you're beginning to catch it, between religion and the gospel. I, I read, I think, uh, yes I did, at the end of the worship service, a little passage out of Ephesians chapter two where it talks about we are saved by grace, and this is a gift of God, not by that which we have done, but his gift. It, it's the very heart of the gospel. And unfortunately, we as Christians, and many of us who aren't in that place of faith yet, many who have turned our back on faith and religion and Christianity, they're reacting not against the gospel or Jesus. Many would say they're reacting against the church, but what they really mean is they're reacting against religion. Let me read you one or two little things that I got out of a Tim Keller sermon. I'm studying for Jonah, which is a series that we're gonna be doing, and I just heard this Great sermon on Jonah by Tim Keller. Let me just read you this. He's making this comparison between religion and, and the gospel, the good news, the kind of thing that takes joy to the city. He says, if you're a religious person, you obey and you obey because therefore you're accepted. You obey because that's how you win acceptance from God. That's religion. The gospel, what Jesus died to bring, says this. He says, I'm accepted. I'm accepted. Therefore, I obey. It's a response. I'm already accepted. I don't have to obey to be accepted. I'm accepted. Therefore, I obey. In religion, the motivation is based on fear and insecurity. I hope I'm doing enough to get to heaven. I hope that I'm not going to burn in hell. I hope that, that I'm not gonna be cursed by God. Oh, I hope I'm doing enough. That's what religion does for you. But the gospel says this, that our motivation is, is based on joy. If you know Jesus personally as your savior, if you know that he loves you and he died for you, and nothing can ever change his love for you, that motivation, being loved, will get you out of bed in the morning. And will get you praying for your neighbor and doing 
what others might think crazy things to see that neighbor's life touch, that family member's life touch. Here's a good one, religion. If you're a religious person trying to do it all right, when you're criticized, you will be furious or devastated. Wow. If you're a very religious person and somebody criticizes you, you will either be furious, how dare they, or devastated. Oh my God, they're right. Oh, there's no hope for me. I'm gonna burn in hell. You see, if you are living out a, a life of Christian religion, again, what will be motivating you will be fear and insecurity. And if there seems to be some question about the fact that you're doing it right, well then, you're damned. You cannot tolerate criticism because it means that you're getting it wrong. And you simply cannot afford to get this wrong. The stakes are too high. That's what religion brings to you. You see a lot of people, a lot of uptight people in church. They're almost invariably caught by religion. The gospel says, when I'm, when I'm criticized, yeah, I struggle. Who likes being criticized? But it's not essential for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my record or my performance. My identity is based on God's love for me in Christ. I want to please God. I really do. Not because my salvation depends upon it or my position before him, but because I love him. I like pleasing my wife. I don't like it when I find I've fallen short of something that, she, you know, Chris, when you pop out, would you get this? And I forget and I feel a dork and I don't like that. But it's not because she's going to curse me. It's because I love her and I want to bless her. One more. My, my identity and self-worth are based on, on mainly how hard I work or how moral I am. And so I must look down on those who I perceive as lazy or immoral. Religious people tend to be very judgmental of other people. And if you catch yourself judging people or criticizing people, particularly other believers, ask yourself this question. Have I erred onto the pathway of religion? You see, the gospel says that our identity and self-worth is centered on the one who died for me, Jesus, and his acceptance. I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different or, or fall short of my expectations because I am a sinner who has been saved. And you are a sinner who has been saved. We're all shivering in the same lifeboat, grateful for the fact that Jesus has dragged us out of freezing waters and we will live. And you and I know, sad to say, that the church of Jesus Christ has got a bit of a reputation of being hypocrites, judgmental, critical. This does not bring joy to the city. And so the astounding thing here is that not only did these nameless ones, in the face of life-threatening persecution when they lost everything, and, and many did die, many went to the you know, Roman arenas, as Henry mentioned last week. 
Many came to terrible ends, absolutely ghastly. And yet, they brought joy. They went into pagan cities where the practices in public you just wouldn't want to mention or talk about or even think about, quite frankly. And instead of going in and saying, you shouldn't do that, oh, that's disgusting. Oh, fancy doing that. They didn't go in and judge. They brought a message which said, God loves you, whoever and whatever you are. Seek his cleansing, his forgiveness, which he can grant you through Jesus, and you will live and know his love. Now that set places on fire because they were used to religion. Religion kills, but the gospel brings life. One little last illustration, and then we'll pray and we'll move on. But Tim Keller, I was telling Fliss this illustration. His, he was talking to his wife about this little thing like that. Uh, you know, religion is this and Christ is that. And his, his wife thought for a minute and said, well, you know, it's a bit like a vending machine. He said, what? He said, it's a bit like a vending machine. And he said, what do you mean it's a bit like a vending machine? And she said, well, you put money in a vending machine and then you press the button and nothing comes out. Anybody ever had that experience? Right. She said, ah, but if you're in the know, what you then do is you bang the side of the machine several times and then all of a sudden there's a click, 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 the money goes down and the drink comes out. He said, right. She said, well, this message of grace is the same. We hear about God's love, his free gift to us. We hear it in our head and we know it. Yeah, we know that. The trouble is it needs to get down into our heart. And what you need to do as a preacher is keep bashing people on the side of the head <laughs> until the word that is in their head goes click, 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 and finally hits their heart. Because you see, once it's a heart message, and not just a head message, it'll change your life. It'll change your street. It'll bring joy to the city. God bless you. Let's have the worship team back up. Let's just stand and pray. Very kind, thank you. Let's just pray. Needless to say, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if there's one or two people here who this morning found themselves identifying rather more strongly than, than they would like with the comparisons that I've made. All that means is that there's another step for you to take, and that's simply to come to the front at the end of the service, go to my right, your left, to, to ask Jesus to forgive your sin and receive this gospel of grace. Get rid of that old religion, it'll kill you. So if that's something you want to do at the end of this service, please just feel free to do that. But let me just pray now. Lord, thank you. It's testimony to, and a testament to your, your passion for the legacy of this gospel of love and grace and mercy. But we are here today talking about it in the 21st century. Jesus, it worked. Whatever you did, it worked. 
And if, Lord God, you tarry, if you don't come back for another 2,000 years, we hope that there is a church that is still speaking of this gospel of grace. God forbid that we should default to tired old religion. And so, Lord God, we ask that you would bless us and that you would forgive us and that you would cleanse us and you would cause that which is in our head to hit our hearts so that it might be joy in our lives, joy in this church, and joy in this city. And everyone said, Amen.